So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the, in the form of God, did not count equality with God as a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and having been found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The second reading comes from Hebrews chapter 2, starting at verse 5 and going through to 18. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, what is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honour, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus crowned with glory and honour because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source, that is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the, the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God 
to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Thank you, Roz. Let's pray. Our gracious God and our most loving heavenly Father, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Lord, I pray that we would uh, see that now. We would see how majestic your name is. We would know how amazing you are. We would be amazed. Lord, as we come to your word, I do pray that you would hear, we would hear your voice, that you would cause me to diminish and that you would take center stage. Lord, help me to pronounce the truth trippingly on the tongue, that our hearts would be encouraged, stirred up, enticed by you, to see you, to savor you, to know you, to believe in you, to follow you, and to love you. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Good morning, Chapel Street. Morning to the folks online and those that will be listening later on in the podcast. Uh, just to remind you, please continue to pray for John and Shelley. Uh, I gather it's quite a serious condition and uh, he's still in hospital. I think he's been moved from, he's on the medical ward and he's been moved from uh, room 12 to room one. Uh, either way, go around all the rooms until you find him. Please visit him. And if you can't do that, please pray for him. He's a member of our family. Please continue to pray for Shelley as well as she deals with uh, a very complex situation. As for us, we've got a complex situation to deal with here. This is a very complex piece of scripture, and I'm hoping that you'll pray for me and yourselves as we go through it, that I don't muddle it or confuse you or confuse myself, um, which is fairly easy. Um, but it's a, a complex piece of scripture. But nonetheless, it's very, very, very important that we understand it and we understand it well. There's a liberty in this. There's a freedom in this for us who believe. For those here that don't believe and listen online or later on that don't believe, there is a tragedy here. And so we must try to understand it. Now, I don't know about you, but uh, if you perhaps have ever evangelized or tried to share the gospel in some other way with a friend or, or whoever, it, uh, it happens to you, you probably get asked lots of questions. And some of those questions are very kind of accusatory. Why do you Christians help hate homosexuals? It's a lie. No Christian can or should hate a homosexual, but that's an accusatory question. And we get those all the time. Society's doing that to us all the time in one way or another. We also get questions that are very profound and significant and important, such as, you tell me your God is good. Well, how can there be a good God when there is so much evil in the world? And that's a fair question, isn't it? The question, though, that I have been asked the least as I attempt to share the gospel with people is, so why did God need to become a man? Why did he need to become a man? Surely this grand story of salvation could be conducted without him needing to become a man. And what are the benefits that come from this God who becomes a man? What was the point in it? 
And my answer to them would be read Hebrews 2, 3, 4, 5. Read Hebrews. The answer to the question starts right here in Hebrews chapter 2. And so I'm hoping that we will know why God needed, desired, had to become a man. Let's just start by reminding ourselves very, very quickly. I'm always doing this, and I fear it takes too long, of where we've got to. We've learned from chapter one that Jesus is the one, God, who is speaking now. He is the creator. It's unequivocal that he's God. The Father says that he is God. He's the radiance of the glory of God. We learn that he is not an angel. We learn that he is superior above the angels we learn that in fact he's superior above all in fact he's reigning now in heaven on his throne and then last time we were together in this text we looked at the first warning and i told you there's lots of warnings and i hope you can remember the warning but if not i'll tell you it again the warning at the beginning of chapter two is simply that we should not in fact we must not neglect so great a salvation, the salvation that's in Jesus that we've been already learning about this morning. Because if we neglect it, we will not escape. And so the advice given by the writer of Hebrews is that we should pay closer attention to what we've heard. Literally, we should pay closer attention to Jesus in his word, what he said from Genesis to Revelation. But we looked at some of the things that he has said in the Gospels. Otherwise, we will drift away. Remember that boat drifting away in the world, not fighting against the world, but drifting. And now the writer of Hebrews does something quite amazing. He tells us that even though this superior, supreme God who reigns above all things, including the angels, he now is found in appearance as a man lower than the angels literally one of us <laughs> anybody here higher than an angel no that's what he's referring to us the ones that are lower than an angel jesus is found in appearance lower than an angel one of us he uses psalm 8 which begins how majestic is thy name in all the world it's not a question it's a statement how majestic that's what he's saying it's your name he uses that psalm, it's a prophetic psalm concerning the Lord Jesus Christ, who receives glory and honor because of the work on the cross, because he's made a man, and that all things are subject to him. And he uses that to explain that that's about Jesus. He even says Jesus, namely Jesus, that we're talking about. So that prophetic psalm literally comes true in Jesus Christ. It's an odd place to go, isn't it? Having said that Jesus is above all things, he comes back and says Jesus is actually born lower than the angels, a man. So we'll pick up the reading again from verse 9. I'll just read us through a few bits, and I want to try and answer this question of why did Jesus, why did God have to become a man? So verse 9, um, and we'll just go to verse 13, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with honor, with glory, 
because of the suffering of death. So that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have the one source. That is why he's not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. I just need to grab my glasses. Could be a much longer message without glasses. So what do we learn from this text? We learn straight away that God, Jesus is crowned with glory and honor. There's Psalm 8 again. He suffered death for everyone. He brought many sons to glory, literally the saved. Notice it doesn't say all, many, not all will be saved. That he's the founder of salvation. He's the single source of sanctification. Why? Because he's not ashamed to call us brothers. Because he's lower than the angels. He's made or found lower than the angels. He's one of us, literally one of us. The same kind, man. But also in, inside this text is a little phrase that is the real kind of clincher for us about why Jesus was made like a man. And I'm going to come straight to it. And then we'll look at what the text says, because it's, it's got to be straightforward, otherwise we'll miss it. Jesus had to become a man because he is the only one that is suitable to be the saviour. So he had to become man because the method, the mechanism for payment for sin is down here. It's not up there. It's an earthly mechanism instituted by God, and it requires death. It requires sac um, sacrifice. And he's the only suitable savior. He is the only suitable sacrifice. You see, in the Old Testament, they had the old sacrificial system. They sacrificed sheep and goats, and doves, and they brought flour as a sacrificial uh, process. But those sacrificial systems, which required a living being to be slaughtered, literally the blood runs out of it, could only pay for so much sin. It was really only a model, a picture of something greater that was coming. They weren't, in the fullest sense, suitable sacrifices. Some people think that good works are enough, that they're some kind of suitable sacrifice, but it's not true because we need something better than goats, something better than sheep, something better than our sacrifices, something better than our good works. And look around, folks. Look around the world throughout all history. Except Jesus Christ, there is no one. There is no one that is suitable than him we need someone better we need someone holy 
If you have cancer and your medic gives you paracetamol as the cure to cancer, you know you need something better. It's not going to work. It's not going to cure you from cancer. You need something better to cure you from that cancer. So I want you to think about sin as a cancer. How are you going to cure it? With good works? No, you need something better. And you can't obtain it. We can't get it ourselves without this person who was born lower for a little while, lower than the angels. So he's the one that needs to come. He's the one who needs to pay in person. And part of that payment is death. We've just celebrated that, haven't we? The death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the bread, which represents what? The flesh, the blood, which the, the juice, which represents blood, life given. Well, if he's not born as a man, he can't have flesh and he can't have blood. He's spirit, right? God is spirit. That's what the word says. That Christ is the incarnated, the enfleshment, literally, of God. So he can act and enact and be physical in this cosmos. He's suitable. And we see him respond to the challenge that we've laid down through our sin. So let's read again verse 10, and we'll drill into this a little bit more. I just want to pick up just a few words. Verse 10 again. For it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist, in other words, the creator, it was fitting that the creator, in bringing many sons to glory, and saving the people who's going to save, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. So I break this down a little bit. I want you to notice at the beginning of this, he says it was fitting. Now that word in Greek also means suitable. We know what that means. At least I hope we know what that means. Right for the task, right for the occasion. The creator through his saving work should be made perfect through suffering. That was suitable. He is suitable for this job, this task. And he's proven to be because he takes up the task. I want you to think about for a moment, if I was to say to you, um, I'm going to ride dirt bikes this afternoon, if only. Uh, but I've decided to wear my thongs. Now, I just explained for our listeners in America who will listen on the podcast that thongs are flip flops. That's what we call them in Britain. But I decided I'm going to ride uh, my dirt bike with my thongs to protect my feet. And Jeff, being the good fatherly figure that he is to me, would say, mate, you don't want to do that. I'd say, why? And he'd say, well, because it won't work. It won't protect you. I'd say, no, I'm going to wear them just the same. You know what he'd say? There's only one way to find out then. Go right ahead. You know what that would look like. When it says here that Jesus was perfected or made perfect through suffering, it means he's being tested. Not the way a thong is tested on my foot if I ride a dirt bike, but it proves something about who he really is. This testing 
of Christ through suffering proves that he's perfect. Now, I know what you're thinking. Wasn't he perfect before? Isn't that what you said? And now you're telling me he's been made perfect? So surely if he's been made perfect, he was probably imperfect before, isn't it? How can something be, that's perfect be made perfect? Well, it doesn't mean perfect in that regard. It means that he's true to who he is. He's got the right boots on, so to speak. And that's what's being tested. Are you really the son of God? Are you really sinless? Are you really enough to pay the sacrifice for the sin of the world? Well, let's see how I go with suffering. That's the means of this testing, this proving. You know, the, the old language around proving metal, you test metal by seeing how strong it is, by bending it. We also have language around testing the metal of someone. Well, this is Jesus's metal being tested, and it happens through suffering. And what kind of suffering did he have to endure? Let's think about it for a second. Temptation. Temptation, all manner of temptation, and yet he never yielded. He was made perfect, you see. <laughs> he was proved to be who he is because he was sinless, not like Adam. <laughs> Adam was proved to be sinful, right? <laughs> he was tested, he was tempted, bang, straight away, sinned. Not like us, we sinned. It's in our nature, sadly. He was tested because he suffered through all kinds of emotion and pain. He wept. He felt the pain of Mary and Martha. He felt the pain of the weight of the sin of the world. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who stone the prophets and kill those sent to her, I just have longed to gather you like a hen would gather her chicks under her wings, but you would not. You were not willing. You hear the emotion and the pain and the sorrow, a man of sorrow acquainted with grief. All human experience was laid on him, and yet he still did not sin. What about obedience? Ros read for us at Philippians 2. He was obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. A shameful, dishonoring kind of death that there is. He was obedient. I think I would have turned back a lot earlier, but he didn't. He was tested is perfected through suffering. What about the Garden of Gethsemane? What a temptation there. If it be possible, take this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. There's the, the kernel of obedience, isn't it? Your, your will is better. I'll do this. I'll go forward. What about the cross? The suffering he endured on the cross, the judgment of his father for his sin? No. Why? Because he was obedient. For your sin, for my sin, for the sin of the world. Is there ever anyone more tested than Jesus Christ? And he wasn't found wanting because he obeyed the father, because his character was proved, was tested, was made perfect through suffering. He proved to you and he proved to me that he is perfect. 
but he is who he says he is. We couldn't do any of them, think about it. He couldn't do any of those things if he wasn't made lower than the angels. Couldn't do a single, run, single one of them if he wasn't a man, but instead he did. He accomplished all things. He was perfected through suffering and through death. And so he's the suitable one. Do you see it? Do you get it? He's the, suit, it's, he's the one that's fitting. He is the suitable one. He needed the flesh to die. He needed the blood to bleed. And he needed the conscience to obey. And he needed to be God to do it. He needed to be man in the flesh. First Timothy puts it like this. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men. Listen, the man, Jesus Christ. Hebrews 4 puts it like this, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. Why not? Because he's a man and knows what weakness is. But one in who, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Hebrews 10, therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places, the throne of grace, by the blood has to be a man of Jesus by a new and living way that he opened up for us through the curtain that is through his flesh and the writer says we can go boldly we have a confidence in that flesh and blood do you get it folks Jesus is the fitting suitable savior because he's the suitable sacrifice and without becoming a man there's no sacrifice sheep and your goats and your good works and it's not enough it's not fitting it's not suitable amen jesus became a man does that make you i'm so glad you were made for a little while lower than the angels so if that is why god needed to be a man to do this great work what are the benefits that flow from this work this reality of this god man coming and look there are about six in this text there are obviously many more than that and we don't have time to do um, all six in this message. So we'll do three now, then we'll recover it again next time and do the next three. But benefit number one is simply this. He tasted death for everyone so that there was no condemnation for you. He tasted death for everyone so that there was no condemnation for you. Verse nine again. But what, sorry, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Now, I find this word taste a little bit problematic because quite often Sandy asks me to taste the soup that's got meat in it because she's a vegetarian and you just taste a little bit, but that's not what the word means here. It means literally to feel, to experience something fully, to eat the meal. And the result of that tasting of death is full death, real death. You can't taste death and only partially die. Do you get that? If you taste death, you die. Right? That's what tasting death is. There's no, I'll taste a little bit. Oh, it doesn't taste good. If you taste it, you're dead. And that's what is happening for him. 
And the result of that death, well, it comes after the judgment on the cross for the sin of the world. A man hanging there for the sin of the world he gives his, his spirit up, he gives his ghost up to die unto death. He says it's finished. And the payment is fulfilled, it's made. And so now there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There's no condemnation, not a little bit of death, all of it. Not a little bit of the law paid for, all of it. Mankind's sin, because he tasted death, guess what? You don't need to taste it. <laughs> you don't need to taste condemnation. Is that a good thing? <laughs> yeah, if you believe in Christ. So if you don't believe in Christ, condemnation's there. It's waiting for you. The judgment is there. It is waiting. And because Jesus tasted death for us and we believe and love and follow and trust and obey, if we can keep trying to obey, we don't get condemned. We also have victory. We have victory over sin and over death. Paul puts it like this. It's 1 Corinthians 15, 50 roughly. He says, death, death swallowed up, quoting the Old Testament. Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, he's so bold. Oh, death, come on. Where's your sting? <laughs> the sting of death, he says, is sin. And the power of sin is the law. Someone needs to be judged for it. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Do you believe in Christ this morning? You're not condemned. You are free from the shackles of sin. You're free from it. It doesn't hold you. You have a victory that's been given to you. You haven't won it. <laughs> Someone else has won it, the Lord Jesus, and he's given it to you. And he couldn't do it if he wasn't the acceptable savior. He couldn't do it if he wasn't a man. First benefit number one, he tasted death for everyone so that we wouldn't be, well, we wouldn't know condemnation. Benefit number two, he destroys the one who has the power of death. Back to verse 14. Since, therefore, the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. That through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. Through dying, Satan is destroyed. He's thwarted. Now, it's tricky, this, because we know at this juncture in reality, Excuse me, he is still the prince of the power of the air. He's still at work, but his time is ticking away, isn't it? It's coming to an end. Read Revelation. He's going to get judged. He's going to be sent in the eternal lake of fire. So that's coming, but he's still active. And how does he act? <laughs> he accuses, doesn't he? He lies, he's a murderer, and he accuses people. You can't judge them. He's not the judge. But he accuses Sam did this, Father. Did you see Sam did this? Is he a Christian? He accuses you. But you know what? In Christ, that accusation is futile. You know why? Because there's no condemnation for you. It's nothing but victory for you. That doesn't mean you shouldn't fight against sin. You should. You really should. We learned last week about if we hold fast. 
if we're immovable, if we're steadfast, we hold fast to the faith, right? we fight against, against sin, we stop flowing down the river and start swimming in the direction of the Lord. We fix our eyes as we've just sung on Jesus, which is Hebrews. But he accuses. He's destroyed, literally in this time, means he's got no power to accuse. He's impotent in that way. He's as busy as he's ever been, but he will come to an end. The power of death is no longer there. The power of death is the point where we get judged, isn't it? It's the point for man to live once and then die and to be judged. You're not going to live again. No reincarnation. But it's gone if you're in Christ. Satan can no longer accuse you to Christ. And if he does... Jesus will just shrug his shoulders, I think, and say, did you not see what I did on the cross? I want to be clear, though, here. This does not mean that Satan can't harm you. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, power, against the dark forces of this world, right? He can harm you, and he will. He will, whether you like it or not. doesn't say that he won't do that. It says that he won't win. Literally, is no charge to bring against you. Who shall bring any charge, says the Apostle Paul, against God's elect? Satan? Who's going to bring any charge against God's people? It is God who's the one who justifies, not Satan. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that is raised from the dead, is at the right hand of God, who is indeed now interceding for us. So who's going to do this? Tribulation? He says, who will separate us from the love of Christ? Tribulation, do you feel tribulation at times? I do. Despair? Distress? Do you feel distressed at times? Persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, as it's written, for your sake, O God, we are being killed all the day long. We're regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No. <laughs> no, says Paul. In all of these things, what things? Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, the sword, in all of these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm sure, says Paul, I'm sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Why? Because he has put to death Satan. <laughs> He's now impotent. He has no power. We have a victory in Christ. We have, we're freed from the condemnation of God. He cannot accuse us, but he can hurt us. So lastly, benefit number three. You no longer need to fear death then. <laughs> right? You no longer need to fear it. People fear death. Sadly, in the modern era, people generally don't. The non-Christian world doesn't fear death. They're very sort of trite with it. Well, it's just something will happen. The extinction, I won't feel it. I won't know it. Or worse, I'll be born again. I'll come back again. They don't fear death. 
They think it's okay. Or they even think that it won't matter that they're sinners. I haven't sinned that bad. God will forgive me. There's no fear in death. Have you ever feared death? I've feared death. I've seen it. You've seen death. I've looked at it in the face. In, in the death of people I know. Dying in my arms. You may have had the same uh, experience. I've, I've been afraid of it. What's going to happen? It's going to come. Maybe, maybe it's not extinction. Maybe there is a hell. People fear death. And what the writer is saying to us here is that you don't need to. You don't need to be enslaved to that anymore. Verse 14 again. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has power of death, that's the devil, listen, and deliver all those who fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. I want you to grasp it. It's beautiful. You don't need to be enslaved to the fear of death. In fact, may I be really bold? You're not going to die. You're not going to die. Now, I know that we will, as Shakespeare said, shuffle off this mortal coil, right? This skin and bones. I know that we will give it up. I know. Unless the Lord returns before it happens, which could be the case. But we're not going to die. We're not going to be judged. You might say, well, that's very controversial, Sam. I've never heard anyone else say that we're not going to die. Well, yes, you have. And I'm going to read it to you again. <laughs> I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, and he says, though he die, ooh, yet shall he live. Listen carefully. And everyone, everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. And he says this, do you believe this? And Martha says, yes, I do. Yes, I do. I believe you. So there's no fear in death. And because there's no fear in death, you can frankly live, I may say it in a gentle way, dangerously for Christ. I'm not suggesting you all do a tightrope walk across Niagara Falls or anything. You can go on mission. We've got some friends that have recently gone with two very small children to Afghanistan. It's kind of deadly. Well, how could you do that? Well, because there's no fear of death. I'm not going to be condemned. I've got victory because Christ is the suitable sacrifice for my sin. He became a man. He made it happen. He was proved to be perfect. You can live, as it were, dangerously. Now, please be careful. Don't go out of here and do something really wild and then blame me for it. But you get the idea. You're free from it. Live for Christ. Live for Christ. Fear of death is a tyranny. I sometimes think that, and, and this may not be quite right, but I sometimes think that there are a lot of people that we probably know that are actually feared, frightened of death. There are plenty that are complacent. But in Christ, we have the opportunity to say, you can be freed from that fear. You can be really freed from it. The world is obsessed with death, but has all the wrong answers. They don't seem to fear it. They don't believe in hell. They don't believe in sin. They don't believe in judgment. The spirit comes to, con to convict of those things. You're right. If you do not know Christ to fear death, 
So if you're a Christian today, here, online, listening later, amen. Amen, right? No fear of death. What's the song? No guilt in life, no fear of death. Is that it? It's the power of Christ in me. You don't await eternal judgment. You can live for Christ. You do get all those benefits in the next three that we'll look at next time. But what if you're not a Christian? You see, that text in Romans 8 says, there is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Well, by implication, it means that those who aren't in Christ Jesus, there is condemnation. Would you agree? That's deadly. That's terrifying. Should be terrifying. I want you to know that Christ was made for a little while lower than the angels to get us onto the right path, the right track to be redeemed, to be reconciled, to know him, to love him, to follow him, to trust him, to live freely, to, to fight against sin, to cope with suffering, which this book will tell us again and again, endure, endure, and persevere. Christ is perfecting you now. He's proving what Christ is in you. I want you to know that that's your life and it's great and you're free because he was made a little lower than the angels because his work was good enough it was the best because he's supreme he's infinite he's holy why would you become a man lord truly because i love you because i love you i'm going to fulfill the law i am perfect enough watch me watch me i will obey i will love i will have compassion i will go to the cross but if you don't know Christ, I want you to notice this. Christ was only made lower than the angels for a little while. And as a man lower than the angels, he was put in the grave. And as a man, as God, he was resurrected out of the grave. And as a man now in heaven, that little while is over, 33 years or so, right? Just that's the little while. It's over. It's not going to be made lower than the angels again. You know why? Because he's coming back again and he isn't lower. He's superior. And guess what? He's bringing the angels with him. He's bringing the church with him, depending on your interpretation of that. And that's it. It's over. He's not going below the angels. He doesn't need to go back to the cross. He doesn't need to prove that he's the suitable savior, the one that is fit for this task, because he has already done so. And you've now heard that. You now know that. He's coming again, and he will never be lower than the angels. In fact, the angels will exalt him, won't they? Will you exalt him? Will you bow that knee that Ross read for us? Will you confess? With Everyone will, right? You'll have no choice. When you see who he really is, will you do it in love and fear and joy? Or will you do it out of shame and horror? You are who you said you were. You get one life and one chance to hear this, to 
to know it and to respond positively. Everyone's going to respond. They'll either reject it or they'll accept it. You get one life to do that in. Because death is coming. And either you'll know it in the fullest sense through judgment or you'll be freed completely from it because of the work of Christ. So if you're not a Christian, you've got this one chance in life, in your life, to become one. And it's actually quite a straightforward thing to do. To be united to Christ, to come under no condemnation, to have victory, then you need to come to Christ. You need to come to him and ask for forgiveness. <laughs> That's it. And then you need to follow. And then Satan's efforts will ramp up. You need to continue to persevere and follow. That's all it is. It's, just, it's, it's a humble prayer. Lord, please save me. I recognize who you are. You are the fitting, suitable one <clears throat> who's perfected through suffering. I, I want to be free from this sin. I want to be free from the guilt and the judgment of it. Please save me. What's he going to do? Say no? He died for you. <laughs> oh, you know what, Sam? No, you can't come in. You're a pretty miserable person. Come on in. Absolutely. Come in to the freedom and the circle of blessing where there's no condemnation and there's no judgment. A great poet put it like this. T'was much that man was made like God before, but that God should be made like man. T'was much, much, much more. Let's pray. Our God and our Father, what a, what a privilege it is to call you Father to know you as father because your son has mediated the man jesus has mediated and continues to thank you lord for saving us for calling us into your kingdom for causing us to see how jesus is the acceptable sacrifice the all-sufficient sacrifice the fitting sacrifice father if there be anyone here or online, or listening later that does not know you, I beg you, Lord, please open their eyes, cause them to come and seek forgiveness, to say sorry, and to receive this gift that we learn about already, Lord, this gift of grace, so that they will experience freedom and victory, and not condemnation and judgment. In Jesus' name, amen.